Let's pray. Father, you are infinitely above us, infinitely greater. You are truly incomprehensible. But Lord, what we know, what you have revealed, we confess and we believe. We confess that Christ is our hope in life and death. We confess our need for you by your Spirit to grant us spiritual life, to grant us understanding. So we pray for understanding now that we might know you, believe you, and love you through your Son. Grow us now not only in knowledge, but in love and in unity, so that you might be glorified in us as a church. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning in God's providence, we're continuing on in John 3, specifically uh, verses 7 through 11. We left off in verse 6 last time, and so we're continuing in this series on conversion and the new birth through John 3 in verse 7 this morning. We're picking up in the middle of this conversation between Nicodemus, a Pharisee, and Jesus, the Messiah. Nicodemus has come to him, but Jesus is the one who sets the tone of the conversation. The new birth, that's the topic of discussion that Jesus has set. Over and over, he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. A few weeks ago, looking at the first three verses, we saw that the first thing this tells Nicodemus and tells us is that Nicodemus has a great need. When Jesus tells him he must be born again, he's telling him he's so bad that he must be born again. He doesn't tell him to clean himself up. He doesn't tell him to do a certain ritual and then God will accept him. He tells him he must be born again. Nicodemus doesn't need new morals. He needs a new heart. Nicodemus doesn't just need a little help. He needs to be raised from death to life. Then we saw in verses 4 through 6 that to be born again, to be born from above, is a work of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit begets spirit. So only a work of the Spirit can make a spiritual people. Nicodemus needs to be born from above, needs to be born of water and spirit, Jesus said, probably alluding to Ezekiel 36, where God promises in the new covenant to wash us from our sins, to give us a new heart and a new spirit within us. Nicodemus needs that new heart, that new will, new spirit. He needs to be regenerated, we said. And apparently, Nicodemus marvels at this teaching. So we pick up this morning, partway through their conversation, actually partway through Jesus' statement, where Jesus is telling him, do not marvel. Don't marvel at what I've just said. Nicodemus probably is not a great poker player. Jesus doesn't even wait for him to respond before uh, telling him, don't marvel. He's probably making some kind of incredulous facial expression. 
What does it mean to marvel? And why is Nicodemus marveling? What does it mean to marvel? Well, the word can have a positive or a negative meaning. The Bible often uses it in its positive sense. In John 8, for instance, Jesus marvels at the faith of the centurion. And the disciples, just a few verses later, marvel at Jesus' own power over the winds and the waves when he stills the storm. So used positively, the word marvel carries with it a sense of awe, of being impressed. You might marvel at the Grand Canyon. In this sense, we should certainly marvel at the grace of God. We even like to sing a song here about that very thing, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. To marvel can have a positive meaning, but it can also have a negative meaning. It can mean to be kind of taken aback, to recoil in horror and disbelief. So you might marvel at a student's disrespectful tone and think, no one used to talk to teachers like that back when I was in school. Paul uses the word like this in Galatians 1.6. He says, I am astonished, or I marvel, that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul's horrified at this news. So this is more along the lines of how Nicodemus is marveling. And this is exactly what Jesus tells him not to do. So that's the sense of the word marvel in this context. But why? Why is Nicodemus marveling? He's marveling at Jesus' teaching, you must be born again. He's marveling, just like we said in weeks past, because it implies he's not a good person. He's not good enough to enter the kingdom as he is. He's marveling because he must be born of water and spirit. He needs God to cleanse him and to give him a new heart. He's marveling really at the root of things, at God's grace. He's marveling. He's recoiling in disbelief that Jesus is saying, you need God's grace. You, even you, Nicodemus, you leading religious man, you need God's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace means unmerited or unearned favor. Do you marvel in this sense at God's grace? Does God's grace cause you to marvel, to to shrink back and recoil and think that it's offensive? Maybe you marvel at the need for grace. You're horrified at the idea that God would judge anyone and need to be gracious and merciful at all. Maybe you're shocked that God would be gracious to anyone but you. You might lean in that direction if it's easier for you to see others' sins than your own sins. Maybe you're offended that someone would tell you you need to change as much as Jesus is saying, that you need to be radically changed, born again. The kind of grace that Jesus is getting at doesn't mean that you need to just break a habit or two, but that your whole life, your whole disposition towards God needs to change. On the other hand, so on on one hand, you might marvel at grace in that way. On the other hand, you may marvel at God's grace because you think that you could never be worthy of such kindness. God could never show me grace. I'm just too bad. I'm just too worthless, too broken. God is too good, and I'm too bad to ever be in a right relationship with him. Do not marvel 
Jesus says to Nicodemus, and to you and to me. Do not marvel at God's grace in that way, in the negative sense of the word. And Jesus gives us three reasons not to marvel. Jesus gives us three reasons not to marvel. God's will, God's way with Israel, and God's witness in Christ. God's will, we'll see that in verse 8. God's way with Israel, we'll see that in verse 10. And God's witness in Christ are three reasons Jesus gives us not to marvel in this negative sense at God's grace. Look at verse 8 with me. Look down at verse 8 in your Bible. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus says, do not marvel, Nicodemus, at God's grace. God is gracious. It's who he is, and his grace, his unmerited favor. This isn't just a sentiment. It's not just a feeling, a general uh, attitude God has towards the world. That's not all that grace is. It's also an action that God takes. And that grace of God, that action that God takes, flows out of God's will. It's, uh, it, it's consistent with God's will. It makes sense that it flows out from God because it's consistent with who God is. Look down at verse 8 and notice two things with me. Uh, I want you to notice two specific words. Uh, the first word is wind, and the second word is wishes. First, uh, with the, this word winds, notice that Jesus is playing another word game. A few weeks ago, that we saw that Jesus, when he says, you must be born again, that word again can mean again or above, and it carries both senses with it. Jesus is saying, you must be born from above, you must be born once more. Here in verse 8, he says, the wind blows. And that word for wind is the same word in Greek and in Hebrew, but Jesus, John's recording this in Greek here. Uh, it's the same word, wind and spirit. It's pneuma. Pneumatology is the study of the spirit. Pneumonia, when you can't breathe. Uh, it's the same word, wind and spirit. So the wind blows, Jesus said. Jesus is using an analogy from nature. The wind blows how it wants. You can't control it, you can't predict it, and you can't stop it. But what he's teaching in this illustration is that the Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes. And that leads us to the second thing to notice. So Jesus is saying the Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes, and that leads us to this word, wishes. The word to wish is the same word for to desire, to will. So when Jesus is saying that the wind blows where it wishes, he's teaching that the Spirit of God moves where he wills. The Spirit is God. He does the will of God because he shares the will of God. The Father, Son, and Spirit have one divine nature and one divine will. So when Jesus says that the Spirit blows or moves where he wills, He's not saying that the Spirit just kind of blows at random. He moves precisely where He wills, where God desires, because He is God. The point is that He moves where He desires, giving birth to spiritual 
people, giving spiritual birth, spiritual life to whomever he desires. God isn't controlled by your wills or actions. Quite the opposite. That's what makes God, God. He's in sovereign control. It's his sovereign rule over creation, including you. So who experiences this new birth, the spiritual birth? Who God wills. Nicodemus may be tempted to marvel at this teaching because he thought very highly of himself. He thought God owed him grace, owed him favor. I was born a Jew. I'm a Pharisee. I've been trained my whole life. I've kept the law. I'm a leader among my people. They look at me with favor. I look at me with favor. God should probably look at me with favor. But as Peter concludes in Acts 10, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. In this verse, I think the King James is very helpful. It says, God is no respecter of persons. That's a helpful way to phrase this idea. God is no respecter of persons. The Spirit isn't blowing around looking to see who might be worthy. No, God sets his love on whomever he wills, regardless of their worthiness. This tends to offend us because very much in our hearts, we want to be our own rulers. We want to be our own captains. William Ernest Henley captures this near universal human desire in his famous poem, Invictus. How many of you have heard or read this poem? Well, here it is. It's a short one. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Oh, what a wicked outlook. What an unbiblical worldview. It's a desire to wrench out of God's hands the rule that's justly his. It's a philosophy that says, God might tell me how to live. He might tell me and try and instruct me on what to do. He might even save me or damn me in the end. But in the end, it's up to me. In the end, he has to submit to my decisions, to my will. Oh no, friends. In the end, we'll submit to his. We don't know God's secret will. Deuteronomy 29, 29 makes that clear that the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. But we can see God's will, God's spirit in action. And we see it in action when a dead sinner is raised to new life, to new life in Christ. Not because they were worthy, not because they were more humble than anyone else, not because they were smarter than anyone else, 
but because God set His gracious love on them. He breathed spiritual life into them. And the effects are always noticeable. The effects, as we talked about in weeks past, are repentance and faith, a life that turns from myself, from self-righteousness, from sin, and trusts in Christ alone for righteousness. And at this grace of God, we shouldn't marvel. We shouldn't recoil in disdain. We should actually take comfort in this. We should boast in this. And we should pay careful attention to warnings because of this. We should take comfort in this. We should boast in this and pay careful attention to warnings because of this. So take comfort in God's sovereign grace. If you see spiritual fruit of repentance and faith in your life, it's evidence of the Spirit's regenerating work in you. And the Spirit isn't fickle. The Spirit's will is unchanging. The Spirit's will doesn't blow this way and that. It doesn't visit you with God's eternal, unchanging love one day and then flitter away the next. The comfort of every Christian is that He, God, will hold you fast. Though our grip may slip, though our feet may stumble, our salvation from start to finish rests in His unchanging love that never started and will never finish. So take comfort in God's grace. And boast in God's grace. A grace that's mostly up to God, but partly up to me, robs God of credit, robs Him of glory. But our boast is that salvation belongs to the Lord, like Jonah says. Whereas Paul says in 1 Corinthians, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in God's grace. And pay careful attention to warnings because of God's grace. Pay careful attention to warnings. God's grace and salvation is no excuse to live a carefree, careless life. It's actually just the opposite. God's grace is a grace that causes us to heed all the more the warning passages that alert us to dangers of turning away. God's grace isn't something to be taken lightly. It's not something to presume upon to, to take for granted. Passages that urge us to examine ourselves, to keep ourselves, should be taken all the more seriously by we who know that it's not in our power to do those very things. The Christian, the one who's trusting in God's grace, will be one who goes to God in prayer over and over and over for the strength to carry out God's commands. God commands His people to carefully watch yourselves to not turn back from Christ, to diligently pursue good works. And it's only by God's grace that we'll do those things. So take comfort in, boast in, and obey God's grace. 
Look now at verses 9 and 10 with me. Look down at verses 9 and 10. Nicodemus said to him, to Jesus, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Do not marvel. The second reason not to marvel is because of God's way with the nation of Israel, his old covenant people, God's way with the nation of Israel. The Spirit blows with its will, where it wills, and this is consistent with the way that God deals with his old covenant people, Israel. Nicodemus, of all people, should know this. He knows his Bible history. He's even a, a, one who benefits from this very history. He's an Israelite. God sovereignly chose an old pagan, Abram, to make a nation. His love rested on this unworthy man. In his grace, he makes a covenant with this unworthy pagan, Abraham, and brings him to himself, binds himself to Abraham. He again chooses an unworthy man in Moses. He chooses a murderer, an exiled murderer, to rescue this pitiful nation caught in slavery. He rescues a hopeless, helpless nation from a superpower with no help. And after he delivers them from Egypt, he reminds them of this, telling them in Deuteronomy 7, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Deuteronomy, God is reminding his nation before they even enter the promised land of his sovereign grace in their life as a nation. He reminds them again in Ezekiel 16. He graphically describes this process of adopting them, this undeserving nation, by comparing them to a, an abandoned, bloody infant that he finds and raises up. God's not, as we said earlier, a respecter of persons. And that pattern begins with his dealing with the nation of Israel. He freely and graciously bound himself to them in covenant with their physical father, Abraham. Nicodemus should recognize this pattern of freely and graciously choosing an undeserving people. Nicodemus should recognize this. He should be picking up on this pattern of God graciously choosing undeserving people. So when Jesus says that it works the same way with individual salvation, Nicodemus should say, of course, that's how God works. But instead, he's offended. Like the rest of unbelieving Israel, Nicodemus is offended by grace. He's forgotten his own history. They think that their favored status must be because of something they've done or because of who they are. God must respect me. I'm a Jew. God must accept me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. God must bless me. I keep every ceremony to a T. We, the church, 
Millwood Baptist Church should take this as a warning. We as Christians have Christ's promise that He will not lose a single one of His sheep. We have Christ's promise that He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Praise God. But we as a local church, an individual, independent local church, we have to heed this warning given to us in Israel. Israel rejected their election. Israel abandoned the grace of God. They turned from their first love, and so they were driven into exile. They were taught by the law and the ceremonies to look to God as their Savior, but they ended up taking His grace for granted, and they ended up being puffed up with pride. They forgot that outward circumcision was meant to point them to circumcision of the heart, to regeneration. So God in Israel has warned us to not do the very same thing. As a local church, we have no assurance that we'll exist forever. Millwood, by God's grace, may last until Christ returns. But the only way we'll do that is if we do not marvel in skeptical disbelief at this teaching, this doctrine of the new birth. If this is lost, eventually the gospel and this church will be lost. Look at the countless churches, the numerous denominations that have drifted away from this truth that you must be born again. There are Presbyterians, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and yes, even Baptist churches that are no more churches than they are country clubs. They may have signs outside that say churches, but inside they're full of men and women with no spiritual life and pulpits with no gospel. Back in the 1800s, here in America, during the Second Great Awakening, there was a great work of God's Spirit. He blessed the preaching of the Word in countless congregations, and they saw revival. They saw revival. Huge numbers of people repenting and trusting in Christ, being genuinely converted, experiencing the new birth in a short amount of time. That's what a revival is. Churches grew and multiplied. Towns were changed. Imagine a town of a few thousand. If half of them are changed by revival, the town's going to look very different. It was a time of great blessing in the nation. But then, some preachers who got very excited about this revival, this sovereign work of the Spirit of God, this sovereign work that was brought about freely by His grace, began to believe that they could manufacture revival. They saw the results. They saw the results of this blessing of God, this preaching of God's Word that was attended with God's Spirit. They saw deep conviction of sin. They saw even ecstatic rejoicing in God's grace among these people. And they thought, if we can get people to show those signs, we can get them to be born again. They started putting the cart before the horse. They wanted to whip people up into a state of man-made sorrow, man-made fear, and pressure people into making decisions. One man at the time recorded that he would often hear preachers saying something similar to this. God has done all that He can for you and will do no more. Look not for a change of heart. A change of purpose is all that is necessary. Do you hear the difference between that kind of preaching and what Jesus is teaching? Preaching that minimizes the supernatural grace of God and maximizes man's moral ability to decide 
is fundamentally different from Jesus' teaching. The results of that kind of preaching are false converts. The result is that false converts are made. It gives false assurance to those who haven't experienced the new birth that they're Christians, that they're in a right relationship with God. And then when those false converts are quickly brought into the membership of the local church, the church quickly finds preachers who will fit their unregenerate desires. And so the church dies. Who knows how many churches this year in this country, around the world, will die in this very way. Millwood, I say this as a warning, not because I see it happening here. And praise God, I don't think you would ever tolerate anything like that. But we need regular reminders to press on where we're going. There's a reason we have membership interviews. There's a reason we vote people in and out at church family meetings. There's a reason why you all are to make sure that the gospel is regularly being preached Sunday to Sunday. These are good things, and we need encouragement to keep up with good practices. I'm so grateful to be here with you, to be laboring alongside you, with you, for the faithful proclamation of the word in our church. We need encouragement, not like horses that need to be jerked on the reins to get back on path, but sometimes we need encouragement. We need to get spurred on to keep on the path that we're going. So press on, Millwood. Keep going. Do not marvel. Do not marvel. Finally, we know God's will, God's way with Israel, and now see in God's witness in Christ. See in God's witness in Christ a reason not to marvel at God's grace. Consistent with God's gracious will, consistent with the gracious historical work in Israel, is God's gracious witness in His Son. God's gracious witness in His Son. Don't marvel that God's Son is preaching the same message, but with new clarity, that salvation belongs to the Lord, that God is a gracious God, and that God's grace comes to us by spiritual rebirth. And this may be why Jesus is using the plural here in verse 11. Notice that he's shifted from singular to plural, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Remember how Nicodemus started this whole exchange? He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Well, Jesus is responding to his camp by saying, well, we speak of what we know. Jesus may be identifying with the other persons of the Trinity. He may be identifying with the prophets and writers of Scripture in the past. Either might be intended, and I think both are true. But the point is that the Son, the eternal Son, who took on flesh, speaks on these matters with authority. Don't marvel, believe. The Son is the image of the invisible God. If you've seen me, Jesus says to Thomas later in this gospel, you've seen the Father. The Son speaks with the same authority. Nicodemus, if you don't believe what Jesus is telling you is consistent with God's will, if you don't believe what he's telling you is consistent with God's way with Israel, believe it because he, the Son of God, the one you yourself said is from God, is bearing witness to it. He's the living testimony of the grace of God. 
not only in his teaching, but in who he is and what he came to do. The Bible tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to live a life that fulfilled God's law and die a death that fulfilled his justice. Then he was raised for our justification. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what you must believe to have eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God. That's the testimony of Christ that you must receive. Do not marvel at this testimony. Don't think it's strange. Don't bristle about what it says about your sinful nature, about your need. Don't stubbornly reject God's will. Don't recoil at His gracious works in the past. Don't marvel that Christ would go willingly to the cross to satisfy the demands of divine justice to redeem His church. Don't marvel that our gracious God would act graciously. Marvel that He would act graciously to you. Marvel in the good sense. Be struck with awe and wonder and worship. Marvel that God's grace, even this morning, would find you, would rest on you, would call you to repent and believe. Of all the people in this world, all the needy and poor sinners, of all the countless souls that have been fearfully passed over, marvel, Christian, that God's grace has come to you. John Newton, a man deeply aware of his need for grace, author of the hymn Amazing Grace, exhibits this marvel, this wonder that we should have God's grace. He says, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in this gospel of grace and encourage one another, those sitting to your left and your right this morning, that we might find ourselves there on the last day, marveling at God's grace. His grace to you doesn't just stay in your heart. It spills out into love for one another, a love that works. So let's work under God's grace. Work tirelessly. Work self-sacrificially for the good not only of our own souls, but for the good of one another. God's grace in our lives is so often carried out by the hands and words of one another in the church. God's grace spilling over into actions looks like members gladly serving yesterday at Ryan and Allison's wedding. It looks like Lily driving all over this traffic-ridden city to take any student who wants to come to youth group on Wednesday nights there. It looks like the civils picking up the Loudon's van because it was left behind from the ambulance ride. It looks like everyone who's signed up to bring the Loudon's meals. It looks like Laura meeting up with Linda or Steve Dobblestein and Steve Palafka meeting up for lunch. It looks like knowing one another, giving your time to one another, in ways that seem strange to Nicodemus and ways that seem strange to the world around us. God's grace 
doesn't produce a cold, dead church, but a strangely, marvelously warm church, one that's been brought to life by God's Spirit, overflowing with the love of God. Love is the great marker of life, of spiritual life in Christ. By love, the world will know that we are Christ's. Some will be repelled. Others will be drawn in. And so a church that loves one another will cause others to marvel, some in a good way, some in a bad way. So let us love. Let them marvel. And let our gracious God be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your grace that doesn't remain a mere sentiment but has worked itself out in history, that has worked itself out in our lives by the power of the Spirit through the work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship we have through Christ by your Spirit. We pray that we would grow not only in that vertical fellowship with you, but in horizontal fellowship with one another. May there be much evidence of life in this church. May we display the fruit of the Spirit, not only of repentance and faith, but of love and joy and peace and patience. And so let others marvel at your great grace and your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.